Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Today, we're tuning in close by, on campus, in fact. For this episode, we're partnering with the Columbia Office of University Life. The office was created in 2015, and it convenes students, faculty, and administrators to work together on pressing issues within the university and our broader society, from inclusion and belonging, to mental health and wellness, to sexual respect and gender-based misconduct prevention, and much more. It also produces university-wide events and opportunities for the Columbia community. And for this episode, we're shining a light on one of those events. It's called Story Space at Columbia, and it's a new storytelling project that presents personal and inspiring stories from students across Columbia. In the first event, students were invited to tell their stories around a common theme, in this case, identity. Our identity as Colombians, past, present, and future, links us together and plays a role in our lives, but each of us has a unique story that led to who we are today. In the first story you're about to hear, Columbia College student Daniel thinks about his cultural identity with a new metaphor, IKEA. Hello, my name is Daniel Bergerson, though that may change soon. I'm a senior in Columbia College studying history and teaching, and about a year ago, I had the opportunity to study that in Santiago, Chile. So back in August of last year, I was packing up all my stuff and my clothes, like a full library about multicultural education in my suitcase, and I had everything except one thing that I was required to bring. Uh, My study abroad coordinator had asked me to bring a gift that represents uh, my home for the Chilean family about to welcome me into theirs, Um, and I was was stumped. the stereotypical Minnesotan stuff where I'm from, uh, like, you know, Paul Bunyan keychains and the, <laughs> uh, twins baseball caps, had nothing to do with my life because I wasn't like a baseball player or um, someone who cut down trees, lumberjack. Um, and the stuff that was actually part of my adolescence in Minneapolis, like Zimbabwean marimbas and Chipotle burritos, uh, were from someone else's culture. I mean, not really Chipotle, but it definitely wasn't um, Swedish-American enough to like, represent me. Um, because my mom was born and lived the first half of her life in a small town outside of Stockholm called Vesterhanigan. And so I, I was there the last year. I was stumped. I didn't know what to bring. And then the day of my departure, um, my mom assured me, we'll just find something on the way to the airport. And like usual, she was right. Um, like 10 minutes from the terminal, uh, I found the perfect metaphor for my identity. Um, it was a big blue billboard uh, with four yellow letters printed in all caps. I-K-E-A. For those of you who don't know Ikea, um, <laughs> it's like a Swedish superstore, um, chock full of like do-it-yourself furniture and lingonberry jam and like doomed relationships. <laughs> and I thought like, perfect, like this is me. Um, and so... <laughs> And so we parked um, in the Mall of America parking lot. I ran up the escalator into Ikea, past the free child care center. It's clearly not like a U.S. company. And um, I went straight for the sour gummies because I knew that I had loved eating those sour gummies as a kid. So that's what I chose as my gift. And a little bit later, I was up in the air in the window seat of the plane, opened up my bag of the sour gummies. um, And the taste really put me in a nostalgic mood. Um, 
and I was looking out the window and I saw like this once gigantic Ikea, now just a speck against the Minnesota countryside. And I was wondering like, why on earth in my search for a gift that represented my home did I turn to like the world's largest furniture, furniture retailer that operates in like 47 countries, probably including Chile. Um, and I was confused. Like, shouldn't my uh, identity or cultural heritage be more than like vaguely Swedish-sounding products? Um, like, I thought I had more <coughs> Swedish cred than that, considering that like my mom is Swedish, and I had like spoken it for a while, and I spent like every summer of my childhood there until a certain point. Um, I thought that like I could do better than that. So I was chewing on this candy in the window seat, um, and I just kind of started thinking and looking back and realizing that like a lot of that Swedishness had really slipped away without me ever noticing. Um, like, at age five, we stopped speaking Swedish at home because my father never learned the language. And uh, at 12, um, we stopped visiting Vesterhanigan uh, at all because most of my mom's family passed away by then. And I guess by 20, I was, like, in the Ikea candy bins, like, searching for something that would bring back the taste of Vesterhanigan for $7.99 a pound. And, like, I, I just realized something. I mean, maybe you've heard of, like, an Olive Garden Italian. I had become, like, an official Ikea Swede. Um, you know, like someone who only connects to the lowest common denominator of Swedish culture um, through buying, like, mass-produced merchandise. <clears throat> and that actually, that made me pretty sad, right? Because, like, I was like, isn't identity more than a brand name? Um, and I started to, like, recognize this imbalance in my life, you know, between my, like, Minnesotan father and me being Minnesotan and my Swedish mother and me not really being Swedish anymore. Um, and that imbalance really only grew throughout the next semester because I was studying in Santiago and I loved it. And I was learning Spanish, and I was like writing songs with Chilean idioms, and I was like writing papers about Chilean history and politics. But like all the while, I was like, I don't know any of this stuff about Sweden. Like I couldn't talk to you for more than five minutes about what's going on there. But I like have given multi, like multiple twenty-minute presentations about Santiago. Um, so, uh, and I was also writing papers about deculturalization as like a history student, planning to be a teacher. Um, I had some academic theories about like, why a person might, like me, like a second-generation immigrant, um, might end up as an Ikea Swede or something like that. And I had like, different arguments. I was saying, like, you know, of course, like neoliberalism. <laughs> like neoliberalism is like, privatizing public space and those community spaces. And in that way, it's like, pushing cultural expression into the private sector, like the commercial sector specifically, and that's uh, for profit. Um, and like, I, think, I thought that that makes sense. Like, I believe that hypothesis. Um, but it didn't really give me any answers about like, my own family and my own story. So I resolved to speak with my mother um, when I went back for winter break and ask her all the questions that I had never really bothered to ask her. Um, so come Christmas time, um, we're sitting on the sofa watching Law & Order reruns like well-adjusted um, Americans. And, <laughs> and so I wait for a commercial um, and then I just turn and ask my mother, like, Mom, what was Christmas like when you were a kid? And it's amazing how just like one question can open up a person. Because um, she started talking about like backyard games with her cousins and sleepovers at Mormon Vegas, like my great grandmother. Um, and like the time that she brought a rabbit home and like hid it in her room. Um, and before long, she was also telling me about like at 15 years old how she hated high school and how she marched into the principal's office and just told him, like, I quit. <laughs> and I had never known that like my mom was like a badass rebel. And as a teacher who has like a, a love-hate relationship with schools, like I was uh, inspired and I connected with her on a, in a different way. I, I had never known that part of her before. Um, and it felt really good to be hearing all these stories. She continued to tell like the, re less, the rest of her life story, um, basically up until my birth that night on the sofa with Law & Order paused on the TiVo. Um, 
And she told me the rest of her story up until my birth. And she reminded me that I, Daniel Bergerson, am named after her little brother, Daniel Romstrom, um, who died at 18 in a car crash. And I had already known that. She had told me that before. But for the first time, I cried about it. I had never really realized or kind of like, I don't know, uh, like given the appropriate um, thought to the fact that like my mom has all of these experiences and memory and family and language and culture and everything that she left behind to move um, to my father's city in Minneapolis and how much I knew about my father's childhood but how little I knew about my mother's. And so again, that, impal- that imbalance um, made me feel um, quite empty in a way. Um, and before long, I was back in Santiago for a second semester um, and I was at the University of Chile and for the first class, they were passing out um, an attendance sheet. And so my compañeros were writing like, Camilo Caro Zuniga, uh, Valentina Stark Gutierrez. And I wrote Daniel Bergerson. At first, I didn't write anything, right? And I kind of realized like, whoa, this is just like a blank in my life. You know, not just the name, but also the, everything that comes with that. Um, so I did, I wrote my name, Daniel Bergerson Romstrom with the umlaut on the O and everything. And it felt good and it felt right. Um, and come this Christmas time, I'm going to ask my family uh, for their blessing to make that my legal name. Um, and it's a symbolic change, but it's a start. I'm starting to learn Swedish again. If I go to grad school, it'll be in Stockholm. Um, because I'd like to be more than an IKEA Swede again. Um, because identity is like IKEA furniture. You can't miss a piece. Thank you. cultures are just one way to claim an identity. Another way is through religion or spirituality. In our next story, Jan from the business school struggles with the dichotomies of religious identity until he encounters a label that fits. I remember the first time I met my best friend. She asked me where I was from and I said, Um, And she interrupted me and said, me too. This moment reminds me of the time when I'm six years old and I'm standing in this room in the Orthodox synagogue in Cologne, Germany, where I was born and raised. And the rabbi is standing there in full gear and he's reviewing my application documents to become a member of the synagogue. And he shakes his head and he turns to my mother and I and he says, no, this won't do. This boy has not been circumcised the right way. He's going to have to get a recircumcision. And I don't know what it means to get circumcised the right way, but no knife ever came near me, and I did not become a member of the Orthodox Synagogue in Cologne. Nearly a decade later, I'm now 15 years old, and I'm in history class in my high school in Cologne. For the last couple of months, we've been discussing Germany's role in World War II. Just as the class is about to start, the history teacher comes to my desk, and almost as if she's telling me a secret, leans in and whispers, and she says, Jan, Would you mind waiting outside today? We're watching a movie on concentration camps, and I think the other students would feel more comfortable if you waited outside. I'm sure you'll understand. Now, at this point, it's important to note that I was the only Jew in my class. I was actually the only Jew in my school, and I'm pretty sure I did not understand what she meant, but I obliged, and I went outside, and I was in the hallway, long, empty hallway, and I heard the sound of the narrator muffled through the doors, telling them everything about the concentration camps, And the only thing I could think about was, man, I'm looking forward to summer camp. See, for the last couple of years, I've been going to this summer camp that was hosted by this Jewish organization in Canada. 
And this year was going to be our big trip. This year, we're all going to go to Israel and meet other summer camps from the same organization and, and, and have a lot of fun together. So a couple of weeks later, we go to Israel. And the first week, survival training. We are in the Galon Heights, which is the northern part of Israel. And we build mud huts. And we build clay ovens. And we built rafts. And it's amazing. And there's people from the organization from all around the world. And I feel so great. At the end of the week, we have our initiation ceremony. At the initiation ceremony, you become a member of the organization. And as a souvenir, as a token that now you belong, now you're a member of this Jewish youth organization, we get these blue shirts and we sing a song because that's what you do at summer camp. And the next day, we mount the bus wearing our blue shirts and we go off toward the south. The next stop on our itinerary, the Dead Sea, southeast of Israel. So we continue riding on the bus from the northeast and continue going south and south. And we're bobbing on the bus and we're going down. And I look out the window just as we're approaching Jerusalem and there's this big wall. It's a strange sight, like a big wall in the middle of nowhere. And it continues going and going and I turn to the neighbor next to me and I say, what's this wall for? And he says, I don't know. And we ask all the other people on the bus and they don't know. So we start asking the soldiers that were on the front of the bus were there to protect us on this trip. At this point, it's important to note that the year is 2005. And for those of you that don't know, 2005 was a time of disengagement in Israel. And that's a time when nerves were blank. It's a time when there's this big conflict over whether or not the settlements in the occupied territories in the West Bank and Gaza were legal or illegal. And there's two groups of Jews. There's the more liberal Jews who said that the settlements in the occupied territories were not legal and that the Jews should dismantle and get out. There's the other group of Jews, a bit more conservative Jews, and they thought that Jews had a right to be in those territories and therefore they should not dismantle and they should stay there and actually expand their settlements. Tensions were running so high, I could see it in the soldiers' faces. That was a big conflict. It tore apart families. The important thing to know is this. The people that were for the disengagement, for the settlements to be dismantled, that summer they wore blue shirts. And the people that were against the settlement being dismantled, for the settlements to, be, to, to expand, they wore orange shirts. So we continue driving, and we're hungry. And we tell the bus driver that we want to stop to eat, so we stop just outside Jerusalem in this big food court. And we get off the bus, 30, 15-year-olds wearing our blue shirts, accompanied by four Israeli army soldiers with semi-automatic machine guns. And I open the door to the food court, and I don't know whether it was the sun that was blinding my eyes, but the first thing that I see in the food court is this vast sea of orange. Hundreds and hundreds of people in the center of the food court, dressed in orange t-shirts, loudly eating their dinners, engaging in conversation. And there was some force that stopped us from getting any closer to them. They were just this unidentifiable mass in the distance, and we just kind of assembled in the front. And one of my friends joked that maybe a soccer match was on, but no one laughed. And we're standing there, and suddenly the orange people from very far away, they notice the blue people on the other side, and they start getting quieter and quieter, and they start getting even quieter, until this room of hundreds and hundreds of people starts getting pin drop silent, and you couldn't hear a single thing. And I wouldn't have gotten nervous if I hadn't looked to my left, where the soldier that we first asked about this engagement, and you know, soldiers in Israel, they see a lot of stuff. They see war, they see death. And surely, you know, this is not a serious situation, but this guy, he was holding onto his machine gun like it was nothing, and I saw a drop of sweat going down his face, and I know this situation is serious. 
So it's moments before the, the whole situation erupts, he yells at us, he says, everyone, back to the bus, now. And in obedience scene, never before or after, we all go out and we leave. And we're on the bus again, and we're going south toward the Dead Sea, and we're stupefied. We're quiet. We have no idea what just happened. We stare at the seat in front of us, and we're shocked. We get to the Dead Sea. We have a quiet night. None of us really talks. We eat something. Finally, we're really hungry. And we wake up before sunrise, because we're going to go and climb the mountain that's right next to the Dead Sea, because that's the next point of the itinerary. And for some reason, we decide to continue wearing our blue shirts, the blue shirts that we got at survival camp, and we hike up the mountain. No one really talks at this point. It's also really early in the morning. The sun hasn't risen yet. And we get to the top of a hill, and we look down on the Dead Sea. The sun still hasn't risen. And for some reason, one of us feels compelled to start singing an old camp song, the song that we sang at the initiation ceremony, and then more people start joining in, and then I start joining in, and then everyone starts joining in, and I look at all the people around me, and I really like these people, and I feel so strong. And then the sun rises, and it illuminates the Dead Sea into this bright orange. And I remember the second question that my later best friend asked me when I met her in college. She said, so, Jan, are you a Jew or are you not a Jew? And I didn't have the words then, but I think I have the words now. See, I'm not either a Jew or not a Jew. I'm Jew-ish. Thanks, guys. Is identity all in a name? In our final story, we'll hear from a student from the School of International and Public Affairs named Sion, whose many nicknames explain his heritage, but he finds a sense of belonging elsewhere. Well, the first time I got to understand what identity is was when I was three years old and my mother was bored out of her mind. And I shouldn't say that because she's not easily bored. And because uh, uh, her very boring husband was actually out of town and I just called my father boring. So there goes my Columbia money. Uh, so this video is not going back home. So, um, so this was early 90s, small town India. The electricity was uh, not there. And I was just about to start school. So my mother says, um, come, sit down. You've actually learnt all the alphabets and you've learnt a couple of words, so it's time that you learn how to write your name. I was like, I know how to write my name. She's like, no, 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 that's not your name. That's your dark nam. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> like, no, no, that's your dark nam. That's your nickname. That's why we call you Babai. That is what we call you at home. You know, we, you need to start learning the name that the world is going to call you by. That is called your Bhalo nam. And I was like, excuse me, what is my Bhalo nam? And that was the day I actually wrote for the first time my own name in bold cursive handwriting, Sion, the one who was born in the evening. Now, I didn't, that was the day I started my dual identity. And this is very natural for people from coming from my part of the country because in Bengal, uh, you are given the name that your immediate family and your loved ones called you by and before being christened with the name that the world calls you. So, and as prophetic as it was, my father once told me that as a cocky 20-year-old who was traveling the country, he actually met the saint and he goes up to him and says like, what are you talking about? You talk about one God, but there are multiple gods in Hinduism. What are you talking about? And this man just turns around with a serene face and says, so you are a son, 
you are going to be a father and husband you are a lover you are a brother you are a friend but you are just one person and that struck a chord with me because here i was going from babai sahan babai sahan babai sahan and it was like changing masks on a daily basis and being this one person and this dual identity and oscillating between them every single day there was never consistency but this movement was what was always happening and i would just constantly keep thinking that well who am i and then to add to the mixture of that my father kept moving around the country and i kept meeting new people who could never pronounce my name and so without my permission there were used to be permutation and combinations of my new name which my friends would call and finally in college my best friend started calling me supru which is taken from my middle name supratim yes i'm burdened with a very long name and then i was called granny i'm not kidding i used to take care of the drunk and hungry in college so i was called granny so i have multiple names but the fact is that this the when my name was chopped off and i kept on getting these new names i kept feeling deficient incomplete and this is the feeling that i carried with me all throughout my life why six six cities in india one after the other kept on moving and if you know a little about india and you know how diverse it is moving from one region to another is like moving from one country in europe to the other with a different language and a different lifestyle and so i remember in every single school i had to learn the regional language so just imagine as a 5 year old my father's colleague after hours wants to beat me up because i'm as stupid as stupid can be and he's teaching me a new language but he cannot why because i am his boss's son yes something to laugh about <laughs> well my friends uh, they are they were right anyways so this happened i learned the language 5 years you know i learned how to read how to write how to say this language i was my mother's interpreter when she would fight with the shopkeepers and the domestic help not getting seriously so much fun and then my father decides to move from the east to the west another language another set of circumstances and then my neighbor wants to teach me this new language and she still cannot beat me up because i'm that bad at it i survive and then my father moves the third time and this time i say i am not learning that language i am sorry hindi works and so why was this happening i was, would constantly keep thinking about it but this was happening because i would never assimilate i was never one of the locals i was always bengali over there and this bengaliness continued everywhere we went in our suburban home bengal was always alive and my parents would actually go to calcutta once a year and buy tapes and books and films and magazines and would come back and they would read and listen and watch these films and magazines and books and tapes throughout the year so much so that they would scream at them mr das can you please ask mrs das not to watch this film for the 20th time i am dying replaying the same dialogues again the same books again and again till they were torn i felt that mom this is not harry potter relax this is just rabindranath tagore get over it you know if i read harry potter 20 times i can imagine that it's entertaining as hell i mean rabindranath tagore not so much but this is what was happening and then when cable television started they used to watch um bengali news and then they would debate and discuss amongst themselves but i was never invited for that and for once i realized that i was not bengali enough in my parents eyes so the, obviously i was not bengali enough for the world 
And this dark bit of identity became even clearer when I actually started making friends and started living in one city for the longest long, for for a longer time. This was Chandigarh, where I am I'm from. And all my friends were Bengalis, but were raised in Punjab. So they actually would oscillate between Punjabi, Hindi, and Bengali without the burden that I would carry of trying to be Bengali, which my parents had imposed on me without as much as saying it, but sort of like practicing it. And I would just keep keep thinking that this is just unfair. And one night when it actually struck me was when we were eating. And we Bengalis eat with our fingers, you know. So we make a dough of the rice and then with our thumb we push it into our mouth, which is lovely. And here they, these people were eating rice with the spoon. And I was like, genetic mismatch, no harakiri, just get out of here. But they were comfortable with it, and I wasn't. And you know, after such dinners, because we use turmeric in our food, our nails are so, sort of like softly glazed with the turmeric, and which is very stubborn, refuses to go. And I kept on thinking that, wow, that's like what my parents are doing to me. You know, that stubbornness of being Bengali, it refuses to leave me, but it is there. And it was only then later in the evening, you know, when we would go out dancing in, in our annual festivals and we would dance and that is when I would, not knowing the dance, I would still know the movements and I would be like, I would forget that I am not Bengali enough, that my understanding of my language is incompetent, that when I go to Calcutta and I look at the hoardings, I cannot decipher, decipher each and every alphabet, but I give my own representation and then within minutes I realize that the two people sitting behind, my parents, would actually replace my representation, the faulty representation, with the educated representation, which was true. And I would keep thinking, who am I? To me, India is an odd ball of sketches. Bengal is a blank sheet of paper because I don't know. The world, thanks to porous borders, is attainable, but it is so far off. So much so that I used to actually study in the UK before this, and I would go in there. The first couple of days, I would think, I would just listen to myself speak. And English, which is so common for us, at least urban Indians, English in our ears would be like, in my ears would be like, what are you saying? You're in front of the British. They have such good accents. You are sounding terrible. And it would take me some time to acclimatize to me speaking in that environment. And you know what, when I would feel comfortable, four or five months later when I was returning and I would sit in the, air, in the flight and an Indian air hostess would speak to me and that accent would come back to me and be like, and I would be like, yes, I think I belong here. So I don't belong anywhere. Where am I from? I have no idea. And I think coming to Colombia, while, while on my way over here, I was on my flight and I was writing, you know, kids were screaming, so you can't sleep, hate kids. And, and I, I'm sorry, my, my friend is get, going to get married over here. Imagine her, me telling to her kids that, ah, I hate kids. Anyways, so I kept writing and I just wrote this one line that to find my identity is a chore I must invest in. And that is what I am actually doing in Colombia is to find myself a little bit, hopefully. But I know this is not going to happen because it's a continuous cycle. So, yeah, thank you. Whether it's a case of culture, religion, or a name, our identities are often formed through the process of becoming our best selves. Author Joseph Campbell, a Columbia alum himself, may have said it best. The privilege of a lifetime is being who you are.
Thank you for listening. This episode is the first of three segments we're doing with the Story Space program. So be sure to tune in next week for our second installment of Identity Stories. This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley, the Columbia Alumni Association, and the Office of University Life. To get event updates from the Office of University Life, download the University Life app by visiting their website, universitylife.columbia.edu. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.